On your journey through life, you are the hero. There are times, however, when it is beneficial to have an advisor to guide you along your path. Welcome to the Smart Money Simplified Podcast with Brent Mikosh, certified financial planner, certified investment management analyst, and co-founder of MP Advisors, LLC. In this podcast, Brent discusses some of the most important and interesting topics of the day as they relate to finance, the economy, and beyond. Now, on to the show. Hello, and welcome to Smart Money Simplified with Brent Mikosh. Brent, how are you? I'm doing excellent. I'm joining you from what feels like the edge of nowhere, and I'm hoping that that does not (laughs) impact our audio quality. We're not doing video today because I'm actually down about an hour and 15 or 20 minutes northeast of Cabo on Los Palmos, which is in the Mexican Baja Peninsula. And I've had a little bit of spotty Wi-Fi down here, but we want to get, we definitely want to have this conversation and hopefully we, we can get it done uninterrupted. How are you doing today, Eric? Yeah, I'm, I'm jealous. Absolutely. It's really good. jealous. So really good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to lie to you. It's been wonderful being down here. We're down here That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, I am going to step out of the way so we can save this bandwidth and this conversation for you and your guest. You have a guest on the show. Who'd you bring on and what are you guys talking about? I do. I have Mark Herbert on and Mark, I met very recently, actually, uh, we connected through LinkedIn and I, both of us really, really appreciate and love that platform. And, uh, and we're able, he's in Phoenix part of the year up in Oregon for part of the year. And we're able to meet in person for a cup of coffee and had a great conversation. And I was just thinking to myself, you know, I got to get him on with, with Eric and I, because he is, He's definitely an expert in terms of in terms of leadership, in terms of management, in terms of coming into organizations, and and it might be a polite way to say you know cleaning up some things maybe that need to be cleaning up. But uh, but I'm really excited about this conversation. And and uh, Mark, I'm going to turn it over for to you right now and just tell us a little bit about yourself and your history and and how you got to where you are today. Okay, thanks, Brent. I'm very kind. Yeah, I oftentimes uh, refer to myself as a recovering human resources professional. I actually started in that field back when they called it personnel. And I have long believed that the relationship between employers and employees has been fraught with opportunities for improvement. And so I spent the early part of my career uh, in, in mining and high technology and human resources roles. Uh, I then went out into consulting uh, since then. I've worked with uh, anything from Fortune 100s to not-for-profits, all of them around a pretty single theme, and that is the relationship between employer and employed, and, and frankly, uh, a lot, Brent, about what we now refer to as employee engagement. Back when I was first experimenting around with that, they didn't have a name for it, but that has definitely become my, my passion and my driving force and kind of what gets me up in, in, in the morning every day. Yeah, and I love this topic because uh, one of the things that Eric and I have touched on in the past as we've had our discussions together is I feel like, and a mutual friend of ours, we talked about trust in a lot of institutions has diminished a little bit. How do we engage employees and really get them brought, brought into the mission? And do you think it's actually getting better or worse in the business world right now than it has been in the past, that, that level of engagement? Quite frankly, unfortunately, Brent, it's gotten worse. If we look at if we just look at trust as a barometer, uh, one of the things that you and I had a chance to chat about is something called the Edelman Trust Barometer, which is uh, it is research has been done for 26 years by the Edelman Group, and they have looked at trust in four major institutions: non-government organizations, government, the media, and business leadership. And that number, the numbers of trust have consistently gone down. Uh, business leaders occupy the top position, but you can't kind of fall off the floor. That's with about 51% trust. 
I will say that one of the things that was very, very disappointing to me is I'm a little bit of an optimist. And during the during COVID, one of the things that happened is we all got turned on our head and we had to look and we had to do work differently. And so you saw people working remotely and you saw work being organized differently and everything. And you, you actually saw us be able to do that pretty successfully. And I was hoping that that was going to be a wake up call for employers that says, you know, you don't have to watch people to know that they're working. If you have a clear mission, if you provide clear expectations, if you give and receive trust, you can actually still run a very successful enterprise. And what's been very, very disappointing, Brent, is to watch all of a sudden everybody wanting to slam the brakes on that now and saying, even though for three years we managed to do things and move along and, and get the work done, all of a sudden we want everybody back in the office where we can watch you again. And watching the reaction to that from employees, they're angry and they're hurt. And I don't blame them. And that has not contributed to either employee engagement or to the trust relationship. Yeah, you bring up an interesting point that I've, I've talked a lot about with people is obviously during COVID, everyone was sent home. And I think that some of that, there can be a, a negative of that is that sometimes that corporate culture can be lost. The, the sort of incidental meetings at the, at the water cooler that you can get in large organizations. What, what I would like to see, and I'm curious your thoughts on this, is what's the happy medium between pe giving people the freedom to, you know, because I'm, I'm of the belief that provided you do great work, I don't care where and how you do it. Let's just get this, this great work done. But, but how do you do that in a way that's, that maintains the culture that you get just by interactions every single day? Well, that's a, that's a great question, Brian. I think the answer is it's a hybrid model. I mean, there are occasions where we need to see each other. We need to be in person. Uh, there, there, is, there is a tremendous benefit from that. You know, the, what we used to call the water cooler conversation, you know, the conversation in the hallway. There really is not a substitute for that, of being face-to-face -face with people and having shared experiences. But the key is making it a hybrid. And the key is recognizing with people saying, okay, there's going to be a certain amount of face time that we need from you, but we're going to talk about why, and we're going to have a purpose around it. And we're going to talk about it in an adult kind of a way about, you know, what we're trying to achieve with that. But we're going to look at the fact and say that we're going to create, we're going to create balance around that as well. It's not an all or nothing that says, you know, you have to be here 40, 45 hours a week where I can see you in order to know that you're working. And I, and I think it can vary by person. I think it can vary by function. Uh, but I think when you have that hybrid relationship and, you know, one of the things that, that you know, it goes to the whole, why are, you, why are you requiring me to be here? You know, is this a power play on your part or is there actually some level of business corporate legitimacy as to why you need to see me in person and I need to be in an in-person arrangement and have that conversation with people? Now, most of the, the organizations that you've been engaged with, do you find that from a management standpoint, particularly now that we're going, we're sort of going, heading in this transition back into the way things were, is it a power play to want to get people back in the office or are they, are they just not expressing to employees effectively communicating why that is important? I think there's some of both, Brent. I think in a lot of cases, there, there is something that's, that's been missed in, in terms of that human interaction. But I think it's like a, I think it's like a lot of things. Um, a lot of times, you know, those of us in the C-suite, we, we see things very, very clearly from the 20,000 foot perspective. You know, this is our mission. This is the things we get all the things that we're doing and why we do them. What we forget is that there's a shorthand that we have with each other that everybody hasn't been read in. You know, all as they see is what in some cases look to them like very arbitrary and capricious behaviors. The other thing is that there's kind of a, um, 
executive privilege, so to speak, right. that we kind of take it for granted that we're the leaders. Uh, we shouldn't have to explain ourselves to employees. Well, I hate to tell people, but that ship has sailed. Uh, with, with the new generations, they are going to look for and say to you, and it's not just about coming out, why should I engage with you? Okay, you know, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm an entrepreneur, I'm an intrapreneur, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to rent my talents and my abilities to the highest bidder, tell me why it should be you. You know, what is it you're going to provide for me in an environment as to why I should come in? You know, what, what are you doing that is compelling? What are you going to do that's going to make the world a better place or do something more meaningful or help me as to why I should invest my time and energy with you? And I don't think they're wrong. And, 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 the, and the upside of that is when organizations do embrace that, Brent, they achieve things on the more traditional, you know, whatever you want to call them, KPI or metrics, that are numbers that the average uh, investor would weep for. Yeah. Yeah. You suggested during our conversation uh, about a week or so ago that I read uh, Simon's next book, Start With Why. Yep. And uh, fantastic. I've got about literally 15 pages left. It will be done today. But do you, do you feel like there's so many examples in this book of, of large corporations that, uh, that started with a very clear vision of why they were in business and what they were bringing to the marketplace that that got diluted or went away altogether? Do you think that we're in a world where larger enterprises that you are around, are, are we less clearly articulating the why we are in business or is it, or has this just always been the, the state of events in the business world? I think uh, business has gotten bigger. It's gotten more complex. You have international enterprises, you have time zone differences and all. So I think that adds a lot of complexity to it. But, but one of the other things that, that you know, as a, as a kind of a, I'm, I'm a little bit of a, you know, data nerd is, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Dunbar's number. I've heard the term, but I don't know what it is. Dunbar's number is, Dunbar was a social scientist that said that contrary to Facebook and Instagram and LinkedIn, the, the for most of us, the highest number of people that you can have any kind of a meaningful exchange or meaningful relationship with is 150 people. And so in a lot of cases, that's what organizations were built around. Uh, one of them is very common is when you say, see the way that the military is, is put together. They are in those numbers because when, you are, when you're at that size, you can still have a pretty intimate relationship with people. And so that's a part of it is this enterprise get bigger. The other thing that happened, unfortunately, is during the Industrial Revolution is the premise uh, from a guy named Frederick W. Taylor, who is an industrial engineer, is people don't need to know why. People just need to do what they're told, is that, that what we need to do, the whole premise of scientific management is take work and dumb it down into very, very small pieces that are repeatable and can be replicated over and over and over again and don't require any real training. And, you know, that was the invention of white collar management. And that's still a premise that a lot of people, you know, buy into, Brent, is managers manage and people do. And the problem is we are leaving a tremendous amount of intellectual energy on the cutting room floor because of that, because that whole idea of, well, well, even, you know, I, I still talk to executives, well, why do they need to know the why? What they just need to do is come in and do the work. And I ask them, how's that working for you? Yeah, exactly. Why am I in the room? <laughs> why are you talking yeah. to me? That's, that's the question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How, how are you doing at attracting talent? You know, it's a, you know, one of the other concepts that I, that I talk a lot about is the concept of an employment brand. There are organizations out there that have a brilliant employment brand. And I want to be clear that your employment brand is not your product brand. Your employment brand is how it, your, your current employees and how your potential employees see you as an employer. And back in the day, 
if you were a Microsoft or you were an Apple or you were a Starbucks or you were some of those other companies, you were the coolest place in the world to work. I mean, if you know, if, if Apple showed up somewhere and put up a we're hiring, you know, you'd go in in the morning at 5 a.m. and it'd be 10,000 people in a line waiting to apply. And that's part of that why. Their why is very, very clear. Their admission is very, very clear. And, and when you and when you do those things and, and you do that, you you are you, you don't have to waste your time on kind of breaking through some of the more pedestrian elements of trust and purpose and things like that, because people get it because they're 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 joining up with you. Um, I, I shared with you, Brent, that uh, my one of the reasons we still live in Oregon. My my wife is a horse person. Okay. And a number of years ago, she took me to an event with a guy named Monty Roberts. And Monty Roberts is the guy, he's one of the characters of which the uh, the very famous movie with Robert Redford, The Horse Whisperer, was based yeah. upon. Mm -hmm. And Monty Roberts developed a completely different way of training horses. Uh, for those of us from the wild, wild west, you always heard people, we need to break this horse. And that's exactly what it meant. You needed to cause the horse to conform to you, to, to submit to your will. Well, Monty's model is a model that says you don't break the horse. Horses are a herd animal, and horses naturally want to join up with you. And I remember sitting there in the stands watching this guy training horses, and I thought, you know what? He's not just talking about horses. He's talking about people. Yeah. Instead of asking people to conform to your norm, give people a reason to join up with you and to share the values and to share your purpose. And that was very, very compelling to me. I mean, it, it really, it really rocked my my world in a profound way. That said, wow, what if what if what if organizations did that? And instead of being about compliance, we became about commitment. And that was a big premise of my first book that I wrote in 2008, which is actually called uh, "Moving from uh, Managing Whole People: Moving from Compliance to Commitment." Yeah, yeah, and and, and I mean, how do you? I guess, you know, some, I'm very fortunate because uh, the company I work with is Raymond James. I feel like we have an incredibly strong corporate culture. Everyone knows what it is. And um, because we haven't been through a lot of the big acquisitions that many other large financial firms have been through, people feel comfortable with their jobs and they're on the Kool-Aid generally. So I'm fortunate. I don't work in a toxic work environment. But if you've got, um, let's say you're a small or even a, a mid-sized company that where you can have your founder, you're an entrepreneur, you've got 50 to 150 employees. First of all, how can you recognize that the culture is going bad? Because you might be so in the weeds of the numbers and, and providing your product or service, you don't see it. So I guess my first question is, how do you recognize when there's a shift, when things are not going well? Well, one of the first things uh, that, that happens, Brent, is when you start to see the meetings after the meetings is, you know, you spend hours in meetings and you talk about this is what we're going to do. This is the initiative. This is what everybody's going to do. And you come back six weeks later and nothing has happened. Right. Because that's a sign there that says that, that you are you're having conversations, but you're not achieving buy in. Uh, the other thing is, you know, do people ask questions and, 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 and what and, and what do they talk about? Uh, a, a big thing, quite quite frankly, is you know this is this is an old 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 management strategy, but I'm a big I'm a big big believer wherever possible is use something called MBWA management by walking around, go out and talk to people, see what's going out out in your workforce. You know, don't you you don't undermine your inner your inner uh, layers of management, but you do go out and talk to people, and you get that sense of people, and and you can tell. I can walk into an organization, Brent, and and, and I got to tell you, probably within twenty minutes, I can give a, get a pretty good sense of the culture and where it is. 
And what are you looking for when you walk in the door? First thing I walk into, uh, how does the person at the front desk greet me? Uh, do they look like I'm an annoyance? Uh, you know, um, what, what, what is their what is their interaction? You know, am I am I welcomed in? I, I, I look at the environment. I look at how people are interacting with each other. If everybody is heads down, doors are closed, and everything like that, and you know, and I and I and I get this sense of of almost uh, exhaustion on the part of that front person. That tells me this is an environment where they got they got problems already. <laughs> right, right. And and how do you? I guess the, once you recognize that there's some issues, and I think it's like anything, you've got to work you've got to work towards finding that ideal balance every single day. But what is the first way that you can address that? Uh, the first way to address it is to own it. Is to uh, and this is a very scary thing to step up in front of people and say. You know, I'm I'm getting a sense that you know there we're 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 not in harmony here. There are things going on. Um, I'm I'm you know I like I like numbers. You like numbers. Do an assessment. You know, ask people straight out. You know, it's a it, it doesn't have to be terribly complicated to to ask people about kind of some some key things in terms of you know do you, how do you feel about your job? You know, do you come to work excited every day? Do you feel like you get to do your best work every day? Do you do you feel like you get to participate meaningfully in your work? Uh, do you feel like what we do is meaningful and important and have those conversations, you know, tell me about your relationship with your boss. Um, there's a series of, of six questions that I always like to ask people um, when I, whenever I'm, when I'm, whenever I'm talking to a group, right? And, and I ask the questions in a, in a very, very specific way. And the first question that I try to answer for people and ask them is, what is your job? Okay. What, what is it? What is it that you do here? Okay. You know, how do you fit into the bigger picture? The, Mark, the second question, go ahead. Uh, these are, these are, I definitely want to dive into these. So Mark, if you're asking someone, what is your job? Are you yeah. looking, are you looking for, um, here's my tasks. Here's what I do every single day. Or are you looking for something deeper and more meaningful? I'm looking for something deeper and more meaningful. What is the contribution that you make to the organization that is you? You know, a, a great story, Brent, is uh, Michael DeBakey was a very, very famous um, cardiovascular surgeon. He was one of the first people to do a heart transplant. He was also a brilliant leader. And there's this funny story about how a journalist went out there to interview him because he had heard about him. And he's like, this guy can't be who he is. You know, I'm hearing this guy is just, he's a great doctor. He's a great leader. He's a great person, everything like that. And by three days into it, the journalist is just really, really frustrated because he can't get anybody to say anything negative about Dr. DeBakey and, and what they do. And so finally he's leaving. And as he's leaving, he notices that there's this elderly African-American gentleman that is very, very carefully uh, using his dust mop to, to, to mop the halls of the building. And he says, here's my chance. So he goes up to this guy and he says, uh, so what do you do here? And the, the gentleman very proudly uh, props his mop up against the wall. And he says, Dr. DeBakey and I are saving lives together. Wow, that's amazing. Well, and a, and a journalist says, hmm, say more about that. He says, now I get it. You know, DeBakey's a doctor. He's got all these people on scripts. You know, this guy is, this guy's medicated. He's a, he's a custodian and he thinks he's, he thinks he's a surgeon. He says, well, what do you mean you save lives? And he said, one of the things that Dr. DeBakey shared with all of us at work here is one of the biggest reasons people die when they go into the healthcare setting has nothing to do with why they're in the hospital. It's because they get an infection, a secondary infection, because appropriate protocols weren't taken. So that will never happen here. Well, 
Yeah. And so he, so he, the man's literally in his mind, he's not, you know, cleaning the floors. He's saving these people's lives almost. That's exactly right. That is, that's why, right. When, when the guy gets it at that level, at that profound level that 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 person understands the value proposition of the organization and what they bring to that value proposition, try to imagine a situation as a business owner where you have 150 or 200 or 250,000 people who come in with that kind of alignment to your vision and mission every day. Yeah, it's incredibly powerful, incredibly powerful. So let's move on. What's your second question? How am I doing? How are you doing? Do you get feedback? Do you, do you know whether or not you're doing good work? Uh, do you know, do you, do you, you know, uh, do, do, and because that's a big one for people, uh, which leads into the third question. Does anybody care? Uh, if somebody is not rowing the boat, if somebody is not doing the work, does management acknowledge it? And only after you, you get to those first three questions, Brent, do you move on to the next three, which is, okay, who are we? What is our job? What is our why? Then the fourth question is, how are we doing? And then the, the fifth question is, how are we? And then the sixth question is what I call the equivalent of behavioral self-actualization, which is, how can I help? Where that person is, is embracing that. And when you actually start to have that conversation with people and you answer those three questions, the first three questions, you answer them well. And, you, and then you allow them to participate in those last three it's a, it's a huge thing to actually have those conversations and to, and, and to start with those very, very basic things. Because when I say to people, well, does everybody know what their job is? Oh, well, of course they do. They have job descriptions. We have KPIs, we have MB, MBOs, we have all of these things. And I said, hmm, okay, well, let's, let's have some fun. Let's go out there and just randomly walk around and ask people, who are our biggest customers? Uh, what, is our, what is our biggest uh, single source of revenue? What are the biggest challenges that we face? Those things. And I watch people get pretty chagrined when, when, when people can't answer those questions. And I say, you know what? That's not their failure. That's a leadership failure. Right. No, I, I, it's, it's, uh, I, I agree with you 100% there, Mark. And I think that one of the challenges, and I feel this myself as well, even, even in my little shop, is I have, I'm very fortunate. I've got great people working with me. And um, sometimes they're doing such good work on an ongoing basis that you're like, everything's great. And you fail to recognize that, you know what, there might be something more that they can bring to the table, or maybe there's something that, uh, that they would do differently, which could completely change the entire environment and, and, and help us do even better work. Um, so that, yeah, I think, I think it, it all, to me, it seems like it boils down to a certain level of complacency and not wanting to maybe have, have, have some of those hard discussions or just, you know, you're on autopilot and you're going through your day and you're, you're checking the boxes that you need to do and, and you're not recognizing that there could be enormous growth opportunities. I mean, do you feel that that can be the case in organizations? It, it can, Brett. The other thing that I think is very, very important to remember is each person is a different person and each person needs to be managed differently. There are people who the worst thing you can do is check in on them every day. They're like, why are you in my face? <laughs> right. I know what I'm doing. Give me the ball, coach. I'm fine. There are other people that need that level of reinforcement. And so the other thing that is a, is, a, is a critical leadership management skill is learning what each of your direct reports need from you at a given time and being there to meet them where they live and dialing that in. And I know that, you know, that I, could, I could see people out there gonna listen and roll their eyes and say, you know, I'm not a therapist. I, no, you're not, but you are a coach, okay? And you are a leader. 
And when you manage people kind of one at a time and they feel like you, you know, you were there for them and providing them. And the guidance that I give Brent may be very, very different than the guidance I would give Eric or the guidance I would give Jeff. And so tailoring, kind of tailoring your leadership style and your coaching style to the situation, to the person is also a very, very difficult, but very, very, very powerful skill set to learn as a leader. Yeah, along those lines, one of the, the things that I've heard throughout my entire professional career, and I, and I have some belief in this, is that there, you know, my dad used to say this to me growing up and it always impacted me. He said, you know what? He said, when I go to work, he goes, it's a different stage. He said, whatever's bothering me at home, I don't take that to work and I focus on what I need to do there. When I get home, it's a different stage. Whatever's bothering me at work, I don't bring it home and I focus what I, on what I'm doing here. And, you know, I think increasingly, you have to recognize that the people that we're working with are whole people and they've got issues going on at home. And, and I know at least with, with my people, if, if it's something significant, I really want to know about it. But can we hit a point where there's too much sharing and too much of our personal lives is being brought into the professional workplace? And the answer to that is yes, Brad. You know, I remember is, you know, coming up through uh, personnel and HR, you know, you are not your, you are not your staff's therapist. Uh, you're not their parent. Uh, you, they are, they are a functioning adult. And so there are boundaries. There are boundaries of what you can do for them is when you recognize that they are having an issue or something like that, you may not be the person to help them, but you can facilitate that by recognizing that and helping them get the resources that they need. I don't think that there's anything wrong with that as an employer is, you know, the, let's be let's be honest. The reason we provide health benefits and things like that to our employees isn't out of some sense of, of nobility. It's because healthy employees come to work, okay, and they're productive and they don't miss days and they do better work. But by doing those things and having people feel like you actually care about them. But yes, there is definitely a balancing act is, you know, one of the things that I tell people a lot is I hire adults. As a, I respect you too much to treat you as if you're a child, I, I will I will coach you and I will be supportive of you. I refuse to be codependent with you because codependency is the highest form of disrespect that I can pay to another high functioning adult is I'm going to parent you. I'm going to allow you to perform at less than your best. I'm going to allow you to not, you know, meet my expectations and things like that. That's actually disrespectful behavior. And where is that line? When it gets to the point where um, they're, they're, they, are not, they are not meeting the expectations, when it gets to the point where they become a drag on the team, it doesn't mean that you jettison them, but you have a conversation with them and you, and you, you, you acknowledge it and you force them to acknowledge it. Okay, this is where we are. So let's talk about what we're gonna do about this. I mean, I've, I've had you know, situations where uh, I've worked with people who've gone through recovery from drug and alcohol addiction you know, things at home and everything like that. I mean, there are people that would probably say we were we were too invested. Uh, but when that person came out of the other end of the tunnel, Brent, and I had a high-functioning employee, I felt pretty good about us as an organization, and I felt pretty good about them as an employee. And those employees go out and tell other employees, at a time where I was really struggling, my employer had my six, as we talk about in the military. They had my back, and that means a lot to me. So when things get a little bit tough and maybe raises aren't as big as I would like them to be and maybe bonuses aren't as big, I remember the fact that there was a time that rather than my employer dealing with me in a two-dimensional level, they didn't try to parent me, you know, and, and they didn't swoop in, but at the same time, they actually, they actually had a conversation with me 
and they actually they, they actually provided some guidance and some support to me because quite frankly if we take a look at where we're at today um businesses and organizations we're, we're probably in the best position to deal with that of any of the of the infrastructure uh if we had a manufacturing problem you know i worked in manufacturing we would put teams of people on it and spend millions of dollars fixing it well um guess what I would submit that most businesses that the cost of the the skills and the abilities of their employees is the biggest singular investment they make. So tweaking that and learning to do that better and learning to create an environment, a healthy environment for people where they can perform at their best. It's good business. I would, I would wholeheartedly agree with that. And is there um, statistically anyways, does it vary by employee or is there a minimum amount of time that, that a business owner should be should be looking at their people or speaking to them one-on-one -on -one and saying, hey, what's going on with you? And just doing that check-in. I try to talk with people, you know, just on a, I, I try to talk with people at least check in with my direct reports for probably at least once a week. Doesn't have to be long. Sometimes it's five minutes, sometimes it's 20 minutes, sometimes it's 30 minutes. I also try to spend as little time in my office as possible and as much time out there seeing what's going on and talking to people. And I look for things. When I see somebody that has historically been a really high performer and something's going on, I talk to them about it. And they may not be ready to talk to me right then, but I let them know, hey, what's going on? You know, I, I'm seeing I'm, I'm seeing things here. You know, I, I'm seeing, you know, what's going on. And I'm not saying to these in a threatening way that, you know, I'm going to pull out my, my, my stick and beat you. I'm saying to you, I'm not seeing the you that you have brought to the job historically is there something going on that, that that we can help with yeah and uh and and generally speaking if, you, if you're not getting that response like initially at least those wheels are now in motion in that person's brain where they yeah. might be more comfortable next time to come back yeah. to you but also brent i can be pretty good where, where there, there comes a point where i remind people we're a business okay there comes a point where if you are not working on addressing these issues and everything like that uh, it is not fair to the organization and to your colleagues for us to carry you for a sustained period when you are not addressing the things that are going on with you. So it's not a free pass right. that says, okay, you know, you have these things going on with you. So we're just going to overlook the fact that you're mailing it in. Right. Right. And how long would you be willing to, to tolerate that kind of behavior? I guess it depends on the person in the job. If it was not a chronic situation, like if I have somebody that is actually suffering from a life-threatening situation, I'm going to be a little bit more patient. But if it is, if it is a if it is a you know kind of a more behavioral thing, uh, inside of 90 days, we're going to be having we're going to be having some some pretty crucial conversations. Got it. Got it. Let me ask you: so a focus of ours is is working with with businesses that are either looking for you know financial a financial buyer or a growth partner in two to five years. When you do have these mergers or acquisitions take place, there can often be a big con a big clash and contrast with uh, with cultures within now this new organization. Um, can you tell me a little bit about what some of your experience in uh, uh, circumstances have been? Yeah, a lot. Yeah, I see that a lot. We come in and it, it's very interesting, right? We go in and we buy a business. You know, we have reasons for buying it, and then we immediately try to change their culture. You know, we, we need to fix them. They need to learn our culture. What I tell people is my approach is there are reasons why you acquired or you wanted to acquire this business. There are things that they brought to the party. There are things that you bring to the party. What I promote is instead of trying to assimilate everybody into your culture, 
build a new culture that actually represents the hybridization of the best posts of both and acknowledge the things that they bring to the culture and acknowledge that change is hard for people. And, and, and when you do that, because culture is a living, breathing thing. And, it, and, it, and, it, and it's so interesting that you mentioned that, Brett, where I see this, you know, where, you know, you, you know, people go in and they buy a business. And, you know, for example, I had a banker come to me a number of years ago and she had clients that were buying these private clinics. And she said, you know, one of the things that we found out that it really is problematic is the doctors are actually the talent. Yeah. If they're not happy and they're not engaged, we just bought a business that goes from 60 to zero in 90 days. Yeah. And we're not asking that question. We're not going in there, you know, and asking that question in terms of how do we, how do we keep these people? You know, what, what are the things is, you know, are, are these people, you know, they, they are not property. Okay. They, they actually, you know, they have the right to leave. And so, and, and doing that and kind of looking at it and, and just recognizing is, yeah, we all have a culture, but, but but culture should be should be evolutionary, not revolutionary, and just coming in everybody and announcing, okay, this is this is the way we're gonna we're gonna do everything. Um, you know, be my 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 advice to people is be absolutely rigid about principle, but be flexible about process. Right, right, and and so in a, in a case where if you are a business owner and you've you've got your target acquisition here, is that something that pre the pre the purchase or before this this merger occurs how much time should you be spending thinking about that culture because perhaps maybe the culture of what you're looking to acquire is absolutely horrific and that's why you're getting some discounted assets is is that something that's uh, how much time should you be spending ahead of time i guess trying to determine how hard it's going to be to make that fit work uh I, I'm probably biased, Brent, because I'm a social scientist. I come from that area. How much time would you spend looking at their technology? How much time would you spend looking at their balance sheet? Right. Now, what if one of the reasons, Mark, you're buying the business is because the culture is so bad that you know that you know that if you can give them that why, if you can give them that purpose for for heading into uh, in, in the marketplace every single day, you know you can turn this thing around. Let's say you have, you've got a person that's that's an acquirer in that mode. How long would it take for for the new company, I guess, the, the employees now of this combined entity, to realize, hey, you know what, this is now a different world. We've got we've got a, we've got a team in place around us that is actually not just punching the clock, but is really trying to move the ball forward. Have you found that that's been successful? Yes, in my experience, that takes somewhere between. If you're really really lucky, you can do it, and 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 as soon as twelve months, it typically is going to be closer eighteen to twenty four months before you start to see really significant change. What I would also say is the easiest places to do it, Brent, is when an organization is in distress. Uh, one of the other things I say is never waste a good crisis. Sure. People are a lot more willing to pay attention when they're in crises and their job is on the line or they're at risk of losing their job than they are when when you know they are they are basically boiling frogs you know where there's that level of complacency right now as in term now i'm expanding on this because i have one specific situation that's on my mind here when sure. someone is when someone is coming in is it and almost is it does it help to hire a person like yourself where you've got a, a neutral third party that can come in and maybe better express both sides of the of the table to each other or is it really up to the actual acquiring party or business to set the stage at that point? I actually use something a little bit different, Brent, when I, because this is, this is frankly the foundation of the work that I do. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, and what I typically try to do is I come in as a third party. And, and what I tell people, when I come into those situations, I have three roles. First of all, I have some expertise in systems and kind of human resources stuff and leadership stuff. Okay. Secondly, I'm a pretty good project manager in terms of figuring out what needs to be done. And third, I'm a facilitator. But what I have tried to do, and it's actually worked for me very successfully, is to put together a hybrid team of people from both the acquiring and the acquired organization and, and try to create that as my core team and to, and to drive the changes through that core team of people representing both, both the acquiree and the acquired. Okay. And how do you select the people to participate in that? Uh, in some cases, it's self-nominated. In other cases, I sit down with the with the people. And say, okay, you the acquiree, or you're, you know, you're you're talking to people, soldier of the business. You guys know who your informal leaders are. They may not be on an org chart. They may not have a title, but these are the people who are profoundly influential. Okay, if we can get these people on board, and we can get these people to accept that this change is a positive and has upside, and to start to build that foundation of trust. Are, we're, we're going to be doing something with them rather than to them. It's going to take a little bit more time up front, but the difference is the culture chain is is, in an, in, is much more likely to be successful and sustainable than if you try to just drop it in from the top. Got it. Got it. Got it. Now, Mark, let me ask you this. If someone wants to reach you or contact you for this, for this level of help, how, how do they reach you? Uh, email mark at newparadigmsllc.com. Uh, I'm I'm on uh, I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, my my website is www.newparadigmsllc.com. Um, yeah, any 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 of the any of the any of those ways. Um, uh, set up a flare. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And also, Mark, I know you you've authored a couple books. Can you share those? Uh -huh. with yeah, my first book uh, that I'm very very proud of is as I mentioned was called uh, Managing Whole People: One Man's Journey. And it's kind of the it's kind of the exploration, the first 20 years of my career and all the mistakes I made. Uh, so it's a shortcut to people as to don't make these mistakes. <laughs> uh, learn from me. There's an expression I heard that says uh, a smart guy learns some experience. A brilliant guy learns some other people's experiences. Very true. We don't have to repeat the mistakes. Yeah. Uh, uh, and then the most recent book that I that I just did with my partner in the UK that I'm very, very proud of. Is, is a book that we just published the end of October of last year, and it's called The Trust Paradigm. And The Trust Paradigm is about exactly that. It's about the fact that the new international currency is not Bitcoin. It's, it's not, you know, a commodity. The, the, real, the, new, the new currency that is going to drive organizations or drive organizational performance is trust. And organizations need to acknowledge the fact that we have done a, a poor job with trust, and we need to acknowledge that and we need to address it. Uh, I have another book that I, you know, is, is kind of a more uh, for nerds that, uh, that you know, I wrote uh, called Plan B, an alternative to Obamacare. As a human resources professional, uh, back in the late, you know, 80s and 90s, we realized that healthcare was going to be a big deal. And so I spent a lot of time in creating uh, different approaches to managing and delivering healthcare in corporate settings. But the, but the two that are probably the most relevant to folks are, are the, the the managing whole people and the trust paradigm. Yeah, trust paradigm is I've I've, uh, I've read that book and and that's that's how we connected actually was through that book. Yeah. It's absolutely fantastic. I would I'd suggest that any of our listeners uh, pick up a copy of that and, and read it for sure. Well, Mark, I think this is a, a really important conversation. I know that uh, when we had met last week and 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 first were introduced to each other. 
Um, you know, you suggested again, also this book, Start With Why. And it's it's been very interesting because I've been spending some time with that book in the last few days. And I, I do think I'm often guilty of focusing on what it is we do and how we do it, but you've really got to continually come back to that why. And at the end of the day, I think that if you're going to be leading people and leading an effective organization, if, if there's no why, it's kind, of, it's kind of without a vision that people perish. You know, uh, well, there's, there's two others that I would suggest to you, Brent, if you like that, and you may have read them. Uh, another book that I, I, I recommend to every leader or aspiring leader is The Speed of Trust by Stephen M. R. Covey. Yep where he does a brilliant job of describing trust. And another one is a book that is kind of esoteric, but uh, it's, it's a book by a guy named Ken Matejka. And the book is called Why This Horse Won't Drink. Oh, I've not heard of that one. Okay. <laughs> Interesting. Well, Mark, again, I really appreciate it. Thank you for, for taking some time out of your afternoon. Um, again, if anyone uh, if, would like to reach out to Mark, reach out to me or him directly and, and see how he can help your organization. And again, I know you, you feel some time off a busy day for you. And I, I really appreciate you spending some of it with us, Mark. Well, I appreciate the opportunity to visit with you both in person on this front. Uh, you know, we're, we're out there and, and thanks again. Uh, this was a blast. And this, you know, let's, 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 you know, what, uh, what, what Jeff and I are trying to do is we're trying to teach organizations to do this trust thing one at a time. <laughs> And it's got to happen because I've, I found that the people, people are feeling um, you've got to have purpose. And one of the most powerful books that's, uh, that I've read, of course, is Man's Search for Meaning, Victor Frankel. Yeah. And, and those that have purpose uh, can, can endure pretty much anything, including Nazi concentra concentration camps. And if you don't have that purpose, you're just sort of floating through the ether. And, and I do believe that that's, that's one thing that, that in the organizations and our families and pretty much every social institution that we have, um, that, that purpose, that why is vitally important. And, and to the extent that we can all focus on doing that better in our own lives, I think the world becomes a lot better. Couldn't agree more, Brent. Mark and Brent, this has been fantastic. Uh, Mark, thank you for all that you shared. Uh, just fantastic stuff. I mean, this is something that Brent and I have talked about in the past, just off the air about corporations and trust and what's going on with employees and, and the difficulty all these companies are having. And, and a lot of it, I believe, is rooted in exactly what you're saying. So uh, fantastic content. Brent, of course, thank you for facilitating this and bringing on another amazing guest. And our last thank you, of course, goes to you listening audience. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the Smart Money Simplified podcast with Brent Mikosh. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when Brent comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. And we humbly ask that you share this podcast, rate it and leave a review, as this actually helps others find the show. Again, thank you so much for listening today. For everyone at MP Advisors, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to live your best day every day. And we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Smart Money Simplified Podcast. Have any questions about topics covered during the show? Visit www.smartmoneysimplified.com or give us a call at 602-255-0555. Don't forget to click the follow button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the hosts and or guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Raymond James Financial Services Incorporated. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional financial advice. 
Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service providers with any questions you may have regarding your individual situation. Securities are offered through Raymond James Financial Services Incorporated, member FINRA, and SIPC. Investment advisory services offered through Raymond James Financial Services Advisors Incorporated, MP Advisors, LLC, is not a broker slash dealer and is independent of Raymond James Financial Services.